Recording from Title One Studio in Sandy, Utah. Welcome to another episode of Idiot to Genius. I'm Steph Scholl. And I'm Todd Porter. Each episode focuses on individuals that found themselves desiring more. If you're feeling like an idiot, join the club. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear examples of how common everyday people utilize their individual right to life, liberty, and property to break out of mediocrity and to prosper. I'm so happy to be here with Alan Blood, the co-owner of CFG Home Loans. His background in being an attorney that went and passed the bar, went through all of his education to be in the profession of law, and he chose to stay in mortgage. Fascinating. When you put it that way. <laughs> Got it all done. And you stayed in the mortgage side of the business. So you've never, have you even really worked as an attorney? I am wildly overeducated. So much money in student loans. I don't know if a GED is required for a mortgage office. I think it might be. Well, now, but I overshot the mark is what I did. But yeah, no, I did. I, so I passed the bar and I paid bar fees for 10 years. And not once did I ever actually represent a client from a legal perspective. In fact, it was more of a detriment than not because I was in the mortgage business when I went to law school. And initially I got into the mortgage business thinking, well, this would be a good way to avoid student loans and pay for things like tuition. And then I got into law school and I realized I didn't love it like three weeks in. And it, it was very adversarial. Like the whole profession, the idea is right. you're representing somebody. You're trying to come to a, a, a consensus. And my friends who are attorneys would say, no, it's not adversarial. And they're probably right. But from my perspective, that's what it felt like. And it, the rankings were very important. And again, I'm just talking from my perception. Maybe somebody else had a totally different experience. Mm-hmm. From, for me, it, my perception was the ranking was very important. Where are you in your class rankings? And I'd done really well academically with very little effort. Okay. So, <laughs> I just was one of my skills. And, uh, and so I think I had an unrealistic expectation of what that was going to do. And I got my first, I don't know, quarter grades. I'm like, oh, what's going on? I'm not in the top anything. And I thought, well, I've put in zero effort. So why should I be? And that's when it turned on for me. I'm like, this isn't really something that I'm passionate about representing people from a legal sense. But I was very interested in learning about it. I really like learning about new things. And the benefit of law school really is it just teaches you a thought process. <coughs> you go to real estate school and you don't learn how to be a realtor. You just mm. learn how hopefully to not go to jail. Same thing. You go to the mortgage, the pre-licensing education. I think that's true about most professional education pieces. You just learn how not to go to jail, the end goal, most professional licensing. And then you have to learn how to do the job on the job. I think in most cases in law school, you learn a thought process. You just learn how to go through and spot issues and maybe other people learned other stuff. This is what I learned, how to go and spot issues and problems and how to look for solutions and how to put pieces of big puzzle together to get to the end goal. And if you're a lawyer, the end goal is getting a favorable disposition for your client, but as a mortgage person, the end goal is helping somebody get their financing or closing their loan or get their credit to a place where they can meet their financial goals. And so I loved the process. I loved learning the stuff. It was really interesting to me. I graduated. I sat for the bar. I passed the bar and uh, paid bar fees for a while. And one day just thought, I'm never going to represent anybody as an attorney. And at 10 years out, I, even if I wanted to, I wouldn't have been any good at it. And at that point, I, yeah, I think I'm just going to keep this thing hanging on my wall. So I got the diploma on the wall, right? It's the most expensive piece of art I own. <laughs> and, but it's been beneficial for me in a lot of other ways. But no, I've never practiced, never represented anybody besides that, myself. The thing you said there, it's been beneficial for me in many other ways. Isn't that all of life's experiences, if you're engaged in life, if you're not just being a stump over in the corner, when you lean into life, don't you think that's the way it works? I think in a lot of, well, I think it's the way it can work. And you put your qualifies in there. And I think that's true. It's the way it can work. And I know there's times in my life where that's been my experience and other times where I'm just, you're trudging through just trying to get to the end of the day. But I think if you're doing things intentionally, then yeah, you're going you're gonna to glean a lot of experience and knowledge out of doing that no matter what. And really, I think that's education as a whole, right? Very little about education, I think, teaches people to do a job. 
go to college to do whatever it is you're going to do. And unless it's a very specific profession and law school is probably in that medicine right. or some kind of specific engineering skill set, you go and you get an English degree. Well, great. You can speak English, but you also know all this other stuff that's in the background knowledge that helps you be a great communicator or be a great writer or be just a person who can work through hard things. We tell our kids that a lot of the benefit of going to college, especially now where you can get a really good job without ever graduating from college. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can graduate from high school and get a really good job if you get some technical skills. And so we tell our kids the real benefit of it is a lot more about the process and learning how to learn and learning how to do hard things because getting through college and grad school, it's not easy. And so I think a lot of the benefit comes from the tangential stuff, not necessarily the subject matter that you're studying. That was a tangent in and of itself, though, right? <laughs> it, it was. But it's a hard well, I have a question for you, though. Yeah. You, you talked about how becoming a lawyer, it taught you how to think and to create solutions. So are you one of those loan officers that you like the people that pe other people are like, no, don't come to me. Are you like, yes, let's create. Oh yes. Bring it on. Out. Yeah. And everybody likes to do easy things, right? Yeah. I'm no exception. Mm -hmm. I'm just inherently a very lazy person. I would love <laughs> to find the easiest way to get from A to B. Yeah. Yeah. And if there's an easy way to accomplish a task, bring it to yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about it. But I really love those situations where you have to dig in. And so I, to preface this, I like working with people who just have a straightforward situation and make my life very simple and are great to work with. Those You're are like, I people. don't discriminate. No, I love working with really great, well-qualified people. That's awesome. And, but I'm really good at solving problems. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I learned from that is just find, knowing that there's a solution and that you just have to find the right way to get through it. So I hate telling people no. It applies for a mortgage and they've got a really tough situation. I hate saying no. So I don't, really say no from a compliance perspective, from a compliance perspective, I say no, but really we're more of a not yet. Here's where you are. Here's where you want to be. Here's what you can do to fill in the gap. And then some people are willing to take those steps and other people just simply are not. So no, to answer your question, I do. I really enjoy problem solving. Yeah. Weirdly enough. I like, I hate puzzles. Yeah. Like making puzzles. Oh, uh, it's the worst, but I like solving life puzzles. We talked about this once, Todd, I think, there's no normal market, right? No. Normal is maybe what you thought yesterday was. Right. Like normal is what you got accustomed to, but it wasn't normal then. And it's not, there's no normal market, but in a more stable market, let's call it, where there's less volatility and change, I think you can get away without really trying to be a problem solver. Oh. But I think- You can in, get by. In, in my industry, in mortgage, in real estate, or really in any industry right now yeah. where the market and the economy as a whole is in a lot of flux, mm -hmm. I think that- the ability to find those solutions becomes substantially more important. And specifically in mortgage, a lot of people who have very straightforward situations and they've got good income and assets and they're savers and they have great credit, they probably already own a house, they probably have a rate of 3%. And they really don't want to sell because they exactly want to keep the rate. And whether that's a good idea or bad idea is probably a whole, whole other tangent. But a lot of the people who are in the buyer pool right now, I think tend towards more than normal complex situations mm. where they're self-employed and maybe they've been writing off every penny they could for the last five years and they suddenly realize that doesn't really help them get a mortgage. Or maybe there are new buyers coming in the market and they're in a job situation that has some bonus and commission and different things. They've changed jobs multiple times. And I work with um, clients that are a little bit younger. Job changes happen a lot. And so just being outside of the normal expectation, I think to get a mortgage right now, you have to be. I think in the market, especially today, you've got to be a problem solver to be able to help people. Otherwise, you're just an application taker. Mm -hmm. And that's no fun. Yeah. Speaking of that, you were talking about that tangent that we will take. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So what do you think people should be doing now on whichever side of the spectrum you want to go? Because you, like you said, there's people that have got 3% interest rate, yeah. less than 3% interest rate on their homes. And many of them, right, know people that would like to move and everything mm -hmm. else will not let go of that rate. Yes. What is your perspective on that? I think it's interesting. I think when it comes to most things, and particularly with anything that's money related, there's really two decisions that people make. There's an emotional decision and there's a financial decision. And where people get into trouble is they put them in the wrong order. And they make the emotional decision first before they ever get to the numbers. They go, well, I've got this 3% rate. I feel so good having a 3% rate. And it seems like that's a rate that's never going to happen again. And I feel like this is where I should stay. And they never get to the point where they go, well, what would the numbers look like if I did something different? 
And if mm-hmm. people will flip those around very often, once you have the actual numbers and the facts and the information, you find you feel differently about the reality than you did about the perception. And so for people that are in that situation, I think the important part is if somebody's qualified, if they're capable, if they have the financing, if they're prepared and they would like to make a move, I think the best thing you can do is just get the numbers. Right. No, don't decide what you feel until you know what you are dealing with factually speaking. That's probably true about a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say that. Isn't that (laughs) probably take that into almost Mm -hmm. anything on politics and relationships with people and all that stuff. How often do you have people that just make a knee jerk reaction to what they think something is going to be and maybe go down the wrong path without ever really finding out the facts of the situation or put slam doors on opportunities. Yes that could be a positive influence or a positive game changer for them. And they slam that door because they don't have the facts. Yeah. Or to stay in the real estate world, people who think, man, I'd really like to buy a rental property. I hear it's really great. I've got a friend who owns an Airbnb. I'd love to do that. Or I'd like to supplement my retirement because social security isn't going to cut it for me. Any of those things, but they then go, but that's really expensive. And I heard it's really hard. And I read this article that said it was tough. And someone told me that they had a hard time doing it. And all this stuff that's this third party experience that really isn't their experience. It's what somebody else told them they encountered. They read about somebody else experiencing and they'd never get that cart back behind the horse of, okay, let's make the number decision. Let's see, can you, could you even qualify? Is this even an option for you? And if you can't, well, what steps should you take? And would this actually work? And if you go, well, yeah, this could actually work. Well, then you say, well, now knowing this could work and here's what it would look like. Now, how do you feel about it? And most of the time when I help people put those things back in the right order, they feel a lot different. Well, to your point, so many people tell me when it comes to investing in real estate, shocked that I invest in real estate because it's so risky. And they're shocked that I'm self-employed. Is investing in real estate risky? And I'm like, so risky. What are you about? Relative to what? Like <laughs> exactly. Crossing the street, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> yes. And that's that's the fascinating part. To your point is get the facts. Let's sit down and talk the facts. All of a sudden, what I point out to them, like talking to them, let's say that being self-employed is so risky. Well, being a W-2 employee, you have no control. In a poor economy can be ultra risky. Yes. Because yeah. all of a sudden they're going to cut you loose and you have no You're control. Out. So all of a sudden I'm going... Anyway, it's just fascinating how many applications are of that. Get the facts first, decide the emotion, then make the decision. It's just make the financial decision, then make the emotional decision. And I love this because so our listeners have heard I often, Todd doesn't like this, but I refer to myself as the idiot on this podcast because I'm wanting to invest. And this week I actually like took the plunge because... I was like, I heard that like, it's better to build right now than to buy like that article. You read an article. Yeah. Yeah. I read that article. Infamous article. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it made me be like, okay, I'm going to like look at my builder. Cause I was very happy with them. And anyways, to keep my property and to get a new one, I just need to save for my down payment. And I was actually really shocked by that, but I was like, so scared. I don't know why I was so scared to make the call and see if I qualified because I was like, I don't want to like, what if I don't, but just hearing, Hey, you know what? You just need a bigger down payment. But it, it gave me that perspective of now I have something to work for. And it wasn't that scary. Well, so Emerson said, knowledge is the antidote to fear. And I think that's absolutely true, right? The more you know, the less there is to be afraid of. My my wife, if she listens to this, which she probably will, because she's awesome, she's going to love this example I'm going to give, but there's a psychological idea called the Schrodinger's cat. It's the Schrodinger's cat theory. Have you ever heard this? No. Schrodinger's cat. So the idea is you've got a box. There's a box that's sealed. Inside that box, there's a cat. That cat could be alive or it could be dead. You don't know until you open the box. Yeah. So it's Schrodinger's cat. The cat is both alive and dead at the same time inside the box because you don't know. So relative to you, the cat's both living and dead. So that's the theory. But I look at that and I go, I think that applies in a lot of things. I think a lot of people would prefer to not know because the fear of opening the box and the cat's dead inside. It's a gory example, right? That's it. It wasn't my example. Mm -hmm. Schrodinger, we'll talk to him. People would rather live in the comfort of perception than the reality of maybe some discomfort. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. you keep the box closed because then you think, well, maybe I could. Yeah. I could, maybe I, someday I could buy a house. Yeah. Maybe I could buy a rental property. Uh-huh. And so you can tell yourself this pleasant fiction yeah. that someday you're going to, and you never have to actually open the box and find yeah. out. And, you, and most people I think would rather do that than open the box and find out 
oh, I really can't right now. Yeah. And, but I think the antidote to that is the not yet theory, right? Yeah. Yes. It's, it's, there's not a no. Yes. It's just a not yet. And it might be that your not yet is seven years down the road. Yeah. You've got a long road to hoe uh-huh. to get to yes. But there's always a yes at the end of the road. I think for most things, as long as you're willing to pay the price for it, just it's easier to live in the fiction of, well, maybe I'll yeah. open the box and the cat will be alive. Maybe right. I'll open the box and I could buy a rental property. Let me ask you a question. Huh? If your expected answer was either yes or not yet, would you have been more likely to look at it? Oh, that for sure. And I don't know why. I've done so many of these podcasts and I've heard so many loan officers say, <laughs> we don't judge you. Just come talk to us, make yeah. a plan. But still when you're doing it, it's, I don't know why financial stuff, you just feel like you're financially naked and that the other well, person I, is I don't judging. think it's just that. I think it's most decisions in life. I think a lot of people, and I've been in the same boat, are just comfortable with the possibility of yes is much easier than the reality of no. Yeah. And so if there's a tiny perception, a tiny possibility that it could be a yes, well, I'm going to hang on to that rather than finding out, maybe finding out that the reality is no. So I like to shift that from your options are yes or not yet or no, but yeah, that's the thing we use in our house. Can I do this? No, but here's what you can do. Yeah. Well, here's what I think people don't do, or I don't do. Let me rephrase yeah. that. And I've, and I've fixed. You I've, are people. Yes. <laughs> I've tried to repair this, fix this so that I don't do that is they don't tie the cost of not knowing no cost associated with it. Yes. From their standpoint of view, they leave that out there as a potential. Yes. It's a maybe, and I'm not going to go find out. And there's no cost associated. When in reality, if you actually start putting costs into that, the costs are enormous. Oh, that's true. They're far greater than anything else. It's the most costly approach you could possibly take. And yet emotionally, to your point, emotionally, it's a breath of fresh air. And you're not understanding. No, you're drowning. That's you're, really you are drowning. You just don't know it. Well, and just the emotional, psychological cost of really yes. not ever knowing the answer to the question. So somebody who wants to buy a house, they're a first-time home buyer. Well, I've got these friends, or maybe I could buy a house. We're just not ready yet. We're not ready yet. And really, I think people who say, well, I'm not ready to buy a house yet. Sometimes that's true, right? Mm-hmm. But I think often it's just, I don't think I can and I don't want to find out. Yes. And so just find out. Mm-hmm. Rip the Band-Aid off. And I'm the worst offender of this in other places in my my life. I live with the box closed. I'm okay with that in a lot of ways. And so I try and look for those things and see where I've got some false beliefs about that and open the box and find out the answer and positioning it as a yes or not yet helps me to delve into that easier. But that's a really interesting point you make, Todd, of the cost, whether it's the cost of waiting to buy a house and appreciation of rates going up or just the emotional cost of living in limbo is not small. No. No, it's huge. And it usually bleeds over into many other areas of your life. Well, and let's go back to your question about the person who's got a 3% rate in a house they bought four years ago. And that rate is so good. But if the house is no longer the right house, maybe it's a small house and there's been more kids. The kids are getting older and they're cramped and living on top of each other. And the house is cluttered because there's not enough space. And so you're living in clutter and you are working at home, but really you're working in your bedroom closet. And... You know, or maybe it's the flip side. It's a great house, but the house is way too big and you're spending all of your time with maintenance and vacuuming and dusting, or it's just not happening. And so you're not really comfortable with the condition of your home, or there's a lot of repairs and improvements, but it's a big house. There's only the two of you living at home now, but you've got a 3% rate. So how can you possibly justify moving? I think factoring in that piece of it into the cost of making those types of decisions is really valuable. And so when I'm talking to somebody in that situation, the other thing we like to do is just say, well, Picture what you want to do. If what is it you would like to do? If forget interest rates, where would you like to be? If the rate was going to be the same, where would you like to be? Well, we'd like to be in a house that has more space, less space, this, that, or the other, a bigger yard or a different location or closer to our kids because they've all grown and they're going to college or further away from our family member who we don't, whatever it may be, or closer to work because I'm tired of driving for 45 minutes a day. Okay, well, imagine yourself in that. How does that feel versus how this feels right now? With the numbers. Yeah, here's the numbers. Now let's talk about how this feels versus how that feels. And really, not just how does the rate feel, but how does this overall life feel doing this thing you want to do? And if that feels really great and you go, oh, wow, that would be, that'd be amazing. That's the answer for people. And if they look at it and go, when you put it that way, it's okay, but it's not really life-changing. Awesome, stay where you are. 
keep your 3% rate, pay the loan off, have a house free and clear. That's an amazing plan, but maybe it's not the right plan. And I think it's a good plan if made for the right reason, but just because the default plan is where I think people get in trouble and get stuck in a situation that's not really good for themselves, whether it be housing or whatever they're doing in life. It seems like people frequently approach, it's either yes, just like you've been Mm -hmm. saying, maybe a yes or no. And what I mean by that is so many times people are, uh, I'm talking to people that are talking about, I don't want to sell my house. And I go, then keep it. And they're like, what? The non-binary. Yes, exactly. I'm going, we put ourselves in boxes all the time. And the press and our world, everybody around us likes to put us in boxes. And likes to narrow us down that you can either vote Democrat or Republican. Yes. Or you can either vote or, or you can either make a decision to buy or to sell. There's nothing in between. You, nobody talks about all the alternative decisions that you can make. I can rent this out. Keep your 3% rate. Use it as an investment tool. Yeah. Don't give up your 3% rate. But all of a sudden, that higher interest rate, 6%, 7%, whatever the rate is, all of a sudden you're paying that 6 or 7% on a relatively small amount because you pull your equity out of your existing home or the uh, monthly rent is going to subsidize it. Whatever the case may be, there's so many averaging. options. There and, you go. And in investing, people do that all the time, right? You got a stock and it was low and you bought it was a little higher and that's great. And it went up and that's even better. And then it goes down a little bit. So you buy more, you dollar cost average your cost but people don't see that in a bigger asset like real estate. I think because maybe the real estate represents, it's obviously a much bigger commitment, but I think a lot of people still associate the home with where they live. And what you just said is a really great point that, yeah, that's great, but there's other ways to leverage your money in real estate outside of just living in that house, for sure. And a lot of people do not understand when I invest, how much of my own money do I have in the deal? And many times it's, None. Zero. That is. Okay. This is what I want to hear. That is is a tough concept, I think, for people. And when you look at it, and I think it depends on how you define so many different terms, right? So how do you define my money? Is my money that I borrowed from another property and then I spent over here? Or is my money just money that I earned and I put into the bank? But to your point, I think there are opportunities. You have to be a fairly savvy investor or be working with an agent who is a savvy investor like yourself to be able to find and manage those opportunities. Because for the typical consumer, they have no way of actually delivering on that idea without a lot of guidance. Uh, here, it used to be, this is going to date me, Carlton Sheets. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Carlton Late Sheets. night. Absolutely. Absolutely. You yes. don't remember that. This was not that <laughs> long time ago in a galaxy far away. There was TV at night that wasn't TV and, you know, the infomercials, right? The oh, yes. infomercial. Yes. And it was always this guy selling his CDs. He's on a beach. He's got this great 90s hair thing mm-hmm. going on. And he's like, you could be a real estate investor with no money down. Buy my right. 99.99 CDs and I'll teach you how. And so- so a CD is a round disc. Yeah, play. I know what a CD I know, is. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, or it, and then you, you give them hundred yeah, bucks yeah. and then they come and they upsell you for the $15,000 coaching. That's just a bunch of garbage. But I think that kind of idea of aggressive investing gets associated with those sort of concepts that just right. seem very Barnum and Bailey's, right? It seems like you're just selling a bill of goods to people in snake oil. And in some cases, legitimately people have, right? There's oh, yeah. a lot of people that are, defrauded that are selling a dream that's right. not reality. And so, but the reality is it's crazy that you can be a real estate investor without putting in your money in. And there's what, probably 15 different ways to do that, but you've got to have somebody who's going to maybe peel that back just a little bit and show you, here's the steps you can take because it, I'm talking in circles here, I think, but one of the things that's interesting to me is until somebody tells you, okay, for example, you could be a real estate investor by going out and helping people find a house that they want to buy or finding somebody who's got a distressed home and connecting that person with somebody who wants to buy it. You're a real estate investor with none of your own money, but your time. And if nobody's ever heard that before, they might go, wow, that sounds so straightforward. Like, why didn't I think of that? Because nobody ever told you. And so I think it's really important to have somebody who's going to mentor and guide you through that process so you can think of all those ideas and alternatives. Well, in this concept that we're talking about, like when I buy a property, many times I put the 20% down and 25% down. And the key is I then refinance and pull that out. That's it. 
And once I pull that out to where I don't have, again, any of my own money in the deal, it's just the bank's money that's yeah, in the deal. Yeah, now you're playing with the house's money. Yes, now I'm playing with the house money. And when I go to my children and I say, what is my return on that investment? And it's so funny to see them try to run the numbers and figure out. I go, it's called infinite. Yeah. Infinite return on my money. Zero so investment, any return is infinity. Exactly. I said, if I'm making a dollar on that property, I'm getting an infinite return on that money because I don't have any of my own money invested. Now it's just time. Exactly. So equity farming is an interesting idea that you're describing there. The acquire, hold, refinance, acquire, hold, refinance. Interest rate volatility has certainly changed that. And some of the rules and guidelines that Fannie and Freddie have put in place very recently are going to make that more expensive. But it's interesting when people hear more expensive, I think they hear impossible. Mm. So it's not, it's just more difficult now than it was a year ago, but it's definitely not impossible where I think people might go wrong using the idea of equity farming is they buy the property, not planning to use that strategy. So if you're thinking I'm going to be an equity farmer, so equity farming, meaning you're going to buy a property, own it for long enough, the value goes up. You're going to refinance that equity out of the property, Mm -hmm. use that to go and invest another one. You're going to farm equity is Mm -hmm. what you're doing and building these assets that then hopefully appreciate Mm -hmm. in value, use some cash flow, and then off you go. And it's risky because you're building debt along with the asset. But you got, so if you're going in with number one, the ability to manage the risk and to manage the downside, it can be a great strategy. It comes back to that same set of questions, which is, okay, let's look at the numbers and see what does it really look like? In this case, what's it going to cost me? What's my net overall cost? What's it going to do for me financially? What are those numbers going to look like? And then look at and say, is this a good idea for me or not? One of the things I think people forget about when they're doing that type of activity that's really valuable to keep in mind is your appreciation and your tax savings. Somebody's going to go be in acquisition mode and buying up investment property and building investments. You're also building a lot of potential tax savings at the same time. Right. Oh, huge. And if you're going to use the right tax strategy, so here's my disclaimer, I am not a CPA, (laughs) but you can use tools like a cost segregation analysis. And I don't know if you've you've probably done those on your properties, Mm -hmm. Todd, where you can accelerate depreciation and different things. And there's some really good advantages to that right now. They're going to sunset, I think, in a year or two, but right now they're great or just sheer depreciation, or using that to establish some kind of an operational business. Maybe you turn it into an Airbnb, and now you not only have a rental property, but you have a business that you're operating, and a business that you're operating incurs different expenses and costs than a rental property, and those expenses and costs now become tax-deductible expenses and costs because they're in furtherance of a business activity, and now that becomes tax savings for you. And so when you're looking at the net overall gain, I think it's important to look and say, okay, not just what's my rent going to be versus my payment, but what's my rent going to be versus my payment? What's the appreciation in this property and the property I'm keeping? What's my tax savings because I'm keeping this one and I'm buying that one and then put all that in together. And there's your numbers to look at and say, does this make sense for me? Is this a good idea for me? And as you're doing that, my head went spinning. So this is a reason of why you should have a professional help you. Yes. And and someone Mm -hmm. who's been down the road. Yes. If you want to be a real estate investor at any level, I think it's really wise to be working with someone or someones that have invested in real estate and probably done it the way you wanted to do it. If you want to go out and be a flipper, well, you better be talking to an agent who's a flipper. I've never flipped a home. Todd, you flipped homes. Not a lot, probably 10 times. It would be, I would be impossible for me to flip a home because I can't sell anything. I hate selling things so much. <laughs> I cringe every time I do it's it. so hard frankly. to get it, right? And oh, find yeah. it and it's working and I'm going to sell it. Am I crazy? I'm not selling anything. And quite frankly, every time I have sold it, I've regretted it. Yes, you wish. Every time. I, I wish I would have never talking done it. To with, a, the flips. with the flips. Oh. Well, I was talking to a good friend of mine and he talked about some properties he bought in Ogden about 20 years ago, he bought 10 properties in Ogden for Ogden prices 10 years ago, oh. 40 to $60,000, $80,000 was an expensive house. And he renovated them and flipped them and made a good return. And then I've got another neighbor who did the exact same thing. They didn't know each other. Well, he renovated them and kept them. And then fast forward 20 years and the guy who kept them just sold them for a massive amount of money and used that to go and fuel his next piece. And so I think long-term hold can be a really good gain strategy. You just have to really have the strategy. Here's what I like to do with people when they tell me they want to invest. This might be a fun conversation to have. So when someone comes in and says, I want to be a real estate investor, the first thing I want to know is, what's your situation right now? Where are you financially? What's your overview? What's the money you have? What's the assets you have? How are you situated right now? Because that's going to give me a picture of, do you have the current capacity to do anything at all? 
financially? Or do you need to go and look for a partner who has money and you have time and you're going to go find opportunities because you don't have money to invest? And that way I can start in the right path. So where are you right now today? And then the next question is, where do you want to be? You know, maybe where do you want to be in 10, 15, 20 years? Before we came here, my last meeting, I was talking to a person who was wanting to get into investing and her plan is to retire in about 12 years. Okay. And so her horizon is 12 years from now. Okay. So we know where you're at. Here's point A. Now we know where point B is. In 12 years, I need X amount of money in income. Or it might be in 12 years, I want to have X amount of money in assets. Whatever your goal is going to be. Are right. you growing assets or are you growing income? And if you're growing assets, what's the purpose of those? Well, eventually, the purpose of those is to create income. So the end goal of any investing, in my mind, it's income. It's cash flow. So are you going to create that by flipping and create by holding and renting? What are you going to do? So, okay, here's our point A. Here's our point B. You know where you are. You know where you want to be. Well, now how are we going to reverse engineer this end goal with the tools you have available right now? And so in that situation, we looked at a couple of different scenarios. We looked at the idea of, okay, well, maybe you buy a property that could either be a long-term hold or an Airbnb. In her home that she has now, there may be an opportunity to put a basement apartment in. So oh. maybe use some of the money you have, put a basement apartment in and make that into an Airbnb right now and start creating cash flow off of what is otherwise an inert asset. It's just her house. She has it free and clear. It's awesome, but it's not producing anything for her other than expenses, Correct. a place to live and a garage door to fix or whatever. So great. Let's turn that into a monetizing activity, if that makes sense. And it probably will for her. And then go do this other investment over here. And then fast forward a couple of years. Now you're getting income from this property. You're getting income from this property. Well, what are you going to do with that income? Well, maybe if the goal is I want to have X amount of money, you know, we mapped it out and there's two ways she's going to get there. She either needs to have her home with an Airbnb in the basement and a free and clear property over here, or she needs to have her home with an Airbnb in the basement and three financed properties okay. that are each going to give her some income. So then you go and say, okay, well, what's your risk tolerance? Do you like more of the idea? Are you more comfortable with the idea of having one property free and clear that's producing income for you? It's not giving you a lot of tax savings and it's not giving you a lot of appreciation. You're not building assets per se, but you're getting your goal, which is your cash flow. Or are you more comfortable with the idea of having three properties that are all leveraged that as the market continues, you're getting cash flow from those three that's going to be about equal to the one, but now you get appreciation and you get some pretty significant tax savings, both off of the mortgage financing and off of the depreciation asset. Her situation, probably the first one is going to be a better fit because she's risky, but not that risky. Got it. If I was talking to her 10 years ago, I would have said, go plan B right. because you've got enough time to now take those three properties and turn them into six or 10 you compress it down and going into retirement, having three mortgages that you have to service. And if a tenant moves out, well, maybe that's going to be a big problem versus having one property free and clear in her case made a ton of sense, but in somebody else's, that other plan could be a really good one. So I like to go through with people and say, okay, where are you now? Where are you going? What are the tools that we have? And what's the next best step to get you to that place? And here's what that end goal could look like. Here's one or two or three different ways that your end goal is going to be accomplished which one of these three do you want to work towards? Well, I want to go to plan A. Awesome. Here's the next step, the next step, the next step. And you can map it out. And it's literally customized for each individual yeah. where they're at in life, where they That's want to it. achieve all that you kind know, of you stuff. You write your own plan and then just map it out. And then you have to execute, which is the hard part. You got to execute. Something that keeps coming back. There was a word you used at the very beginning of this, and it was intention. It's approaching life with intention. What is become- I've got a disclaimer. That's my wife's word. I've adopted it from her. <laughs> intention. <laughs> intention. She, that is her favorite word. Yes. Anyway, well, you were going to ask me a question. I interrupted well, you. Well, the thing that's fascinating about intention is there's so many aspects of our life that we truly have no control over. No control whatsoever. But how many times do we not take control of those areas of our life that we have control, therefore compounding the out of control aspects of our life. Yeah. Because okay. we, because we don't approach life with intention. Here's my intention. Here's what I'm going after. Here's what I'm going to pursue. Here's what I'm going to, what action I'm going to take. And if we're not intentional about it, we're giving up all aspects of our life to chance. Just throw it to the wind. Yeah. So, okay. Let me take two points on that. So my educational background before law school was economics. So I studied economics. I love numbers. I love statistics. I love probability. I love algorithms. 
I love regression squares. I know. I love it. And the re- I love that stuff. I know. I love it. But here's why I love it. If you have enough data, you can predict the future. Oh, yeah. There are very few things in most people's day-to-day life that aren't entirely predictable with enough data. Got it. Okay, COVID. Not really predictable with the data I had. Maybe right. somebody could. There's crazy events that happen. Credit Suisse failed last weekend or this weekend, and U.S. came in and bought them. Well, somebody actually predicted that three weeks ago. They had enough data. I just didn't have the data. So I think if you have enough data, a lot of things become way less risky because you can pretty much predict the outcome. And so I think, for example, let's talk about the investing piece and taking attention on that. I think having that information, getting rid of the fear, you get enough data and information, you're going to know that Utah real estate on average appreciates at 4.87% per year, every year. And it's done that since 1912. Right. On average. And you're also going to know that over a 10 to 15 year period of time, that stays true almost unequivocally. You're also going to know that the real estate cycle happens about every 18 years and you see this ebb and flow and you can track that over Utah home prices going back as far as the data goes. And you take that data and you just take it and stick it into the future and you can pretty much predict what your investment is going to do within reasonable parameters for a while. And so you can, once you get enough data, you can say, if I do A, then B is 87% likely to happen. So that's good enough for me. I'm going to do A because I'm pretty sure I'm going to get B out of it. And that where I think is where the intention comes in is getting the data enough to make a good major decision based on factual information so that you eliminate a lot of the risk. So that, that's what I, that's why, yes, I am a nerd. No, I love I'm it. a math nerd, but I love it because it tells a story. Well, my wheels are just spinning because as you were talking about the future, I don't know why I don't think about my retirement, probably because it was like 30 years out. But it's as you, never going to happen. As you were talking about with that gal being like, okay, what would you do this and this? And I'm like, man, okay, if I really am like, and there's loans that are 30 years and you're just like, that's forever ago. But honestly, if I got all these properties with 30 year yeah. mortgage, And then in 30 years, I retire. And then you said that cycle every 18 years. And then 10 years into retirement, there's another one of those cycles. I am am doing every cruise for my retirement. Yes. yes. And so it just like that right there made me be like, oh, because I sometimes feel like I got a late start into like even getting a place. And I feel like, why didn't I invest in my 20s or whatever? But Mm -hmm. now I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, I can be set up in my retirement. With, and I don't know, it just makes investing seem less risky. Well, and you can take, if you start younger, or even if you're planning on being younger for longer, you can take a long horizon. This person I was talking to, she's 58. Mm -hmm. And she said the exact same thing. I feel like I missed the boat. I started too late. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, you're actually perfect for you. You are right where you need to be. You're positioned now. You're in a mental state where this is something Mm -hmm. willing to take on. You're able to process this information and take this risk and feel okay about it. You've got the finances. You've got a job. You've got... In her case, a property that was free and clear, her home, it's great. You're very financially stable. You are exactly perfect at 58 to plan for your retirement. She figured she wants to work till she's 70. Perfect. You are right where you need to be. Now, would it have been better to have had that conversation at 28 or 38 or 48? Sure. It would have been a little easier and maybe you could have gone in a different direction, but there's no bad time to start. And I think that's where people get caught up is, Oh man, I should have. It's because it, then the next step is, man, I should have done something five years ago. I guess I can't now. <laughs> Shoulda, woulda, coulda are swear words in my in my vocabulary. <laughs> they really are because yeah. it, it's don't get me wrong. I swear all the time. They're going through my head frequently, yeah. but I have to shut them off. And the reason why is there's nothing you can do about that. Number one, number two, it so destroys your motivation, your passion, your drive, your energy going there. Yes. It, rather than going shoulda, woulda, coulda. Let's do what's right in front of me right now. What can I do? There are so many opportunities that are right in front of my face. And I'm not, I'm missing them. I know I am. There's opportunities all around me that I'm missing every day. Because you're living in the, oh man, I missed this yesterday. Yes, or I'm not in tune. I haven't gotcha. put my mindset or my energy or whatever in tune to be able to recognize it. But I'm seeing a lot of opportunities, even though I'm missing out on a bunch of them. And, and the key is do it. Let's go. Let's take advantage of what's right in front of our face. There's a, a concept that we actually had mentioned earlier, and it comes up a lot, I think, when it comes to these kind of conversations. I like to read. I read a lot. I read a lot of garbage fiction. 
I like to read spy novels, but I also I actually that. read stuff that's <laughs> <laughs> business stuff, whatever. And I had resisted for a long time the whole law of attraction kind of vein okay. of reading, right? The secret and all right. that stuff. Because mm-hmm. I thought it was just a bunch of new age mumbo jumbo. Right. I didn't need any of that nonsense in my life. I got all okay. the nonsense I need. Oh, that's garbage. And I started looking at it. Somebody said something and it started my thought process. And so I've read a few books. And one of the things that stands out about what you just said is a precept of that is the idea that the present is perfect, right? Where you are right now is where you are right now. And it's exactly where you are and where you should be. So live in this moment right now, because it is the only thing you can impact. You can't impact what happened yesterday. There's nothing you can do about what's going to happen five minutes from now, other than what you do right now. And so once you get your mindset into this idea of the present is perfect, it is perfectly where I am and where I should be and where I need to be right now, because it's where I am. And then start moving just on that I think it, for me, that's been a little bit of a mental shift to move away from either living in the past or living in the future. Yes. And not meaning we're not going to plan. I just told you about this elaborate mm-hmm. planning process I go through with people yeah. if they want to go and be investors and they want to go through that process. But having a plan, but then saying, okay, now we're going to live in this right now. Yes. And I think when you do that and you start living with intention, whether that be, I want to be a real estate investor, or I want to improve my education, or I'm looking for a different job opportunity, or I'd like to have a change in my relationships, or I want to have a better relationship with my kids or my spouse or whatever it may be. The whole law of attraction, I think that occurs when you're living in that moment is when you start looking or thinking about those things in that moment right now, you start seeing those opportunities that have always been there. You just never saw them. So what I'm looking up here, you've, have you heard of the red car syndrome? Yeah. Yes. The Bader-Meinhof phenomena. Mm-hmm. And it's got a weird story if you want to go on a deep midnight dive, like I sometimes do into Wikipedia and read about it. But the essential concept, which you know, is that we want to go buy a red car. So all your red cars, well, there's no more red cars on the street after you decided to buy one than there was before. It's just now you're seeing it. Right. And I think that applies in this, right? If you think, boy, I, I think I want to start thinking about my retirement and maybe real estate investing is a part of it. And maybe this is my plan. And you start putting that in part of your thought process. You're going to see all these opportunities that were always there. You just didn't see them. You weren't looking for them. And again, whether that's, I want to have a better relationship with my kids or my family, we're going to hear stuff that people say, and you're going to go, man, what a fantastic idea. And you have all these epiphanies, not because the thoughts or the ideas are new. You just, never saw them. You just right? tuned into it. You were looking for red cars. Now you're right. looking for red cars and they're everywhere, which goes back to maybe what you were saying earlier, the idea of being an investor with no money down. I think once you get to a place where you go, okay, there is possibility and opportunity oh. and it's possible for me, then you start seeing it everywhere. Once you know there's a solution, back to our earlier question about mm-hmm. puzzle solving, right? Yeah. Once you know that there's some solution to the puzzle, well, then it's just a matter of finding the solution and you can solve it. And suddenly you're going to look for those ideas, the law of attraction. You're going to feel like this stuff is coming to you. It's really not. You're just aware of it a little bit. And when it comes up, you notice it. Whereas before you didn't, that's my theory. No, I think spot on. Absolutely spot on. Well, and I, I love that because at the very beginning of my podcasting, I interviewed a gal that she was 70 and she had, I think, six or seven properties free and clear. That all cash flowed. And I remember at that time, she was the first person I had ever met with that many investment properties. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. And now, especially with this podcast, I just see, I'm like, oh, okay. Because then it was like, that's not doable. But now, and even this conversation, just as that reminder of, I don't need a hundred doors. I don't need to be super risky. Like how that lady, she's okay. I feel more comfortable having one paid off. That, right now, that would be more my jam to to shoot for. But the, there's the risk that we can all take. But really planning, if you have two places that you're cash flowing every month, that's huge for your retirement. Yeah, it's great. Or even throughout the rest of your life. So and knowing number one that it's possible. And then number two, having some kind of a directional plan to get there. And it and the rest just becomes execution. Yeah. Which really isn't that hard. It's not difficult. It's just complex. It's not it's complex and there's a lot of moving parts. But it's not hard in and of itself to do. It wouldn't be hard for you to go out and have a couple of rental properties paid off in 30 years. In fact, it'd be pretty easy. But I can say it's easy from my perspective yeah. of having been investing yeah. for the last 20 some years. Uh-huh. I can look back at that and go, oh yeah, get, if the goal right now was I want two properties free and clear in 30 years, Todd, how easy is that? 
No, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, done. But the key is yeah. being intentional yeah. about yeah, it. I'd right? that, I'd having the plan. That's my problem to solve. I'd be like, oh, it's already solved. That's easy. I, see, I can solve that in the next like, six months. It seems so, especially because yes. I just bought a house like two years ago. It just seems so far off. But I think that this is just opening my mind. And I'm like, honestly, my end goal isn't to work myself dead. To just live comfortably. And I'm like, it's so doable. Well, so we talk about other people's money. That's your yeah. zero, zero money financing that right. is out there. You know, other people's money. Yeah. The thing that I think people don't think about is other people's time and other people's perspective. Yes. Right? You can borrow other people's time and other people's perspective, especially in real estate, because as a buyer, it's free. You as a buyer are probably going to work with a real estate agent. 87% of homes last year that were sold with real estate agents, 13% were not. So 87% probability you're going to work with a real estate agent. So- you're going to work with a realtor. Well, do you want to work with a realtor who has the perspective of where you're trying to go? Or you want to work with a realtor that you're going to pay the exact same money to, which is as a buyer, nothing that does not have that perspective. It's going to be the same thing. So why not, why not borrow other people's perspective and other people's time? I mean, when you're hiring a real estate agent, you're really just using other people's time, right? Or a mortgage person. Mm -hmm. My clients, they're using my time, mm -hmm. freely giving it to them until they close on a loan and then I get paid and it's great. Mm -hmm. But same thing, they're going to get a mortgage from somebody. My fees, I'm going to brag right now, are really good. I think our rates and fees are genuinely as low as anybody's going to find nope. and better than most. And I would invite anybody to, to challenge me on that because mm -hmm. I love proving that one. <laughs> um, that said, let's say that our costs were the same as everybody else's. Great. You're going to pay the same for a mortgage. Well, do you want to get a loan and some papers to sign or do you want to get perspective on, hey, here's some things you could think about in structuring this deal today so that you can do tomorrow's deal and tomorrow's deal and tomorrow's deal. And so being aware that you can leverage other people's perspective and other people's time as an investor, as a buyer, I think is, or as a seller is super valuable. And I wish more people would take that idea because I think it would change the way that they hire professionals for their life, whether that be their CPA or their real estate agent, or their financial planner or their mortgage person. It's not hiring a mortgage person. Isn't just about, can you get me a loan? Will it close on time? And is my rate and cost going to be what you told me to be? That's like the baseline minimum. Right. That's like a D minus in mortgage world. <laughs> yeah. I can get a D minus for you. If that to you is an A, then fantastic. My license. Well, that's your baseline. Can you do your job with some modicum of yeah. reasonability? Okay, good. Well, don't make that the end goal of hiring someone. Okay, well, what else you got? What's your background and experience? What's your perspective on doing what it is I'm trying to do? I'm a first-time home buyer. I want to buy a house. Okay, well, the question I want to have is, do you want to just buy this house or do you want to buy this house and the next house? And is this house going to be a house you're going to keep and rent? Or is this house going to be a house you're going to buy and sell? And if it's going to be a buy and sell, is that event going to happen in three years or five years or seven years or 10 years? And the reason I want all that information is then I can say, okay, well, based on this information you've just given me and based on my perspective of helping people just like you several thousand times, this is the loan that's most likely to get you from here to here. And I know you've got 20% to put down, but if this house is one you're going to keep and you want to buy and keep as a rental, don't do that. Put 5% down, 3% right. down, save the other 15% for part two, which is going to happen in two years. And then you can buy that as a rental or you can move and buy that and keep this yeah, one. That's and, now so you, smart. and so just having a longer term perspective is so valuable in making good financial decisions. And sometimes I think people don't really understand the value of that because they commoditize the service that they're receiving from the service provider without really digging into, okay, what's the other information I can get here on top of you just basically giving me a D minus. Any realtor can let you in a door and show you a house. Well, and, and, and right, right down that, that lane, like a deal that I just did with some clients, the gal, what single gal buying a house, her family was tapping into her wealth on a regular basis. Her father passed away. She got a inheritance. And I looked at that. We had the conversation about what are her goals and everything else. She said, well, I want to go buy a house. And she wanted to put the 5% down. And I said, and what I told her, the opposite of what I would normally say, I yeah. said, no, you need to pay cash Get for the house. Get your money out of the hands of your family. Exactly. You need to pay cash <laughs> for the house. That away. And she said, really, really? I said, yeah. And I told her flat out. And her family was right there. I said, yes, because if you don't, it's going to be gone. And I shouldn't say I just did this because it's been over a year. Yeah. Well, she just called me and she said, thank you. She goes, because everything I didn't put in the house is Go gone. On. And she goes, but I have this house free and clear and nobody can tap into it. Yeah. 
And I said, exactly. So it's all customized. It's customized counsel. What makes sense for their situation? It's so spot on. Well, and I think you have to have some perspective to do that. And there's nothing wrong with being new in our industry, right? Being a new mortgage person, a new title person, a new real estate agent, a new insurance person. Everybody started somewhere. And there's nothing wrong with working with somebody who's new. But the question that I would want to ask if that was a person I was going to hire is, okay, you're new, but who do you go for questions and how can I tie into that person as well? So you're new in your job. Awesome. You're a go-getter. You're smart. You're educated. You're ready to go. But when you have questions, who do you ask? Let's bring that person into our conversation as well. Can I go to that person or can we go to that person together and then maybe check that person out and find out you know, how experienced and knowledgeable are they? If somebody in this industry, there's a lot of agents, I think, that came in when the market was very easy and you could make money in real estate by just like breathing, right? A, a dog with a known in its mouth I'm can make licensed. Right in real estate. Yeah. And that was it, right? But maybe they don't have the perspective of, okay, here's what's happened over time. And they don't have anybody behind them that has that perspective. And so for me, I think that's a really valuable key that sometimes people miss out on unintentionally and lose a lot of value that they could have had to do it. And if somebody is going to be an investor, since we've been talking about that, it's such a pain to hire people, right? Hiring no. and finding someone to hire is the worst Yes. I do not enjoy the hiring process. I don't enjoy mm -hmm. being Either interviewed. Do I don't enjoy interviewing. It's just not my thing. There's an HR person out there listening. That's like, what? That's my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> right? That is not me. Okay. So the time that you spend finding and hiring a really good real estate agent, a really good mortgage person, finding the right title company, getting an insurance person you can trust, finding a CPA, why in the world wouldn't you do that just once? Why do that again and again and again? And a lot of people, they make their hiring decisions off on the real estate off of whose name happens to be on a sign they drove past. Statistically, that's a high percentage of people who used a realtor found them on the sign, which is great if you're good at putting up signs. And maybe lightning strikes and you also happen to be great at being a real estate agent, but maybe you're just good at putting up signs. And the consumer calls, assuming I saw a bunch of signs with your name on it, you must be great at your job. Maybe. Maybe you're just good at putting up signs. And that's two different things. And so going in and intentionally asking those questions, doing a little bit of an interviewing, and then do it once and be done. That's why I love this idea of helping people figure out their plan. Because if we can help them know, okay, I'm here and I'm going there. Awesome. Let's work together to get you there. And I've been doing this 27 years this month. Whoa. 27 years this month. That's a long time. So we've seen a lot of ups and downs and ups and downs. And long enough that I've got clients that I've worked with over that long period of time that I've been able to see go from literally getting into real estate to being near to retirement and their kids are now buying real estate or whatever the case may be. And so it's cool to be able to look back and say, okay, this actually worked, right? The people who follow the plan, it worked out great. And so that's a lot of personal satisfaction for me, but it's also cool to see it's entirely possible. As a capstone coming with the market the way it is now, the volatility, in many ways, we're in unprecedented times. Mm. Yet, like you talked about, historically, the data is showing values continue to go up. Equity continue to be built, especially here in Utah. It's uh, We've got a lot of people moving into the state and so forth. With the exciting moments that have occurred, even in the last week or yeah. two, it's been crazy. The bank failures that have taken place. Market changing. Reg almost daily. Seriously. Yeah. It's, it's just changing so much. What would you suggest, meaning to people That's that are great out there? question. So a biblical phrase from the Songs of Solomon, there's nothing new under the sun comes to mind. I think the Beatles said it too, right? There's nothing new under the sun. This is not new. It feels new, but it's not new. And it feels new if you haven't gone through it. And it feels terrifying because I can tell you the first time it was terrifying, but it's not new. I can look back. So I started in mortgage lending in 96 and the market was interesting in 96. There was coming out of a little bit of recession. Real estate was picking up. And then 2000 was the dot-com bubble. If you remember, right? Yeah. You know, the, this is going to date me again. The Super Bowl <laughs> commercial, they had the talking dog for pets.com and they spent a million dollars on this commercial and they had tons of stock and it never even really existed as a viable company. It was like this crazy internet world, like this crazy worldwide web that nobody knew anything about. Back when you used to think you had to say www.title1.com, right? right? Yeah. And now if I say that, people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right? I'm like nothing, it's just title. Just type it into Google. So, you know, that happened in 2000. And people who had money in their pensions 
And I had family members who were involved in that or lots of people in Utah that were involved. If they were involved in any IBM or any of the defense contractors, anything that was tech related, well, they had a massive wealth reduction. And then one year later, it's 9-11. And then we fast forward to 2005 and it's the, the housing recession for everyone but Utah. And suddenly in Utah, we have investors coming out of the woodwork from California and Arizona because those markets are already crashed and pouring money into Utah, building way more houses than we needed at the time, created a massive surplus of housing relative to our, our needs and household demands. And at one point we had 11.2 months of inventory on the market, which right. for anyone listening is terrible. Like right now, what is it, about 45 days? Yeah, you know, So crazy inventory and home prices, home selling for 45% of the construction cost in Saratoga Springs and an entire development in Roy, seven out of 10 houses in a fairly new large development in Roy were in foreclosure. And that was just all over the place. So that happens. And there's 2008 when that all explodes, right? And then we move forward and we're climbing our way out of that in 2012. And then suddenly we hit 2018 where for the first time in history in Utah, we suddenly found ourselves in a situation where there are more households than there was total housing units. So we crossed over that very important line. And suddenly home prices went nuts and it wasn't unpredictable and it wasn't impossible to see. All you had to look and see is, okay, we aren't building enough housing for the people that are being born and moving into Utah. So we now have a housing deficit and we've had a housing deficit in Utah since 2018. So then prices are going up and then COVID and then post COVID. And so, and, and I look at all that and I go, this is nothing new. This is just a variation on the theme. And the theme was fascinating. All that history that you just gave. And then COVID, the professionals, the gurus said, the market's going to adjust down. And they were accurate for about 30 days. Yeah, and then it went nuts. <laughs> and then everybody started realizing, I don't need oh. to live in New York, California, Washington yeah. State, and Oregon. And I can actually live in Idaho and Utah and still keep my pay that I get from New York, California, Washington, and Oregon. And all of a sudden, the thing that's amazing about it is up until that point, we had our own little ecosystem. Yes. Which kept the pricing under control. Well, now that ecosystem has been destroyed. Total disconnect. Because of all the money coming in that is not tied to Utah. Yeah. And all of a sudden, kaboom. And the market explodes. Yes. And now people are thinking it's imploding, but it's really not. When you look at mm -hmm. the numbers, it's really not. People just aren't afraid. So, okay. So to go back to your question, Todd, what would I say? Okay. Number one, this isn't new. It just feels new. And there's aspects of it that are different, but I can tell you, having lived through 2008 through 11, bank failures happening every day, after a little while, it was just like, oh, what banks failed today? There was a website, implodometer.com. And we would log on every day. I don't know if you were looking at this, implodometer.com. We'd log on every day, be like, okay, what banks went out last night? And it was a daily update for about a year and a half. And then it started slowing down. And then, and then 2011, suddenly the market started moving again. And I remember talking to people in 2011 saying, boy, it's a good time to buy. There's 11 months of inventory. Go buy a house, pick a house, make an offer. Somebody's going to take it. No, the housing market's crashing. Well, within months of 11.2 months inventory, it slid right back up again. And we returned to a normal market within about 14 months. Interestingly enough, I looked at this yesterday. Someone who bought it. So going back to your question, what would I tell people? I'd also tell them this. Someone who bought a house at the absolute peak of the market before 2008, they paid the maximum price for that house. If they held that house for 12 years, we're talking the median home price. They held that house for 12 years. They made about a four and a half percent annual return on their money, right? So they paid the max price for it. They just held it for 12 years. And the challenge with that is the only metric we have for that is the median home price. So the mathematical middle of a set of data. Right. The problem with that is from 2008 until 2018, 2020, the size of homes being built significantly changed. Right. So the median home price was now for a much smaller home. So if the median home price in 2008 was for a 2,400 square foot brick rambler in Sandy, well, now the median home price was for a 1,700 square foot townhome. And that 2,400 square foot rambler, it went up way more than 4%. It's just the median versus median. That's the only metric we have. So if you look at specifics, it's a much better return. So what would I tell people? I would say if you're buying and you're planning on it being a longer term hold, and I would say longer term being like seven plus years, you are exceedingly safe if you're smart about where you buy right now. If you're buying and you have no margin, 
you're getting a whole nother topic because we're wrapping up. I want to open this can of worms, but I'll say it anyway. You're getting a temporary rate buy-down, which I, I, did I say that with enough venom? Oh. Spit that out, a 2-1 buy-down, which nobody really understands. Well, very few people really understand that get into them. Consumers don't. Not a lot of mortgage people seem to be able to do the math on those and find out that they're terrible for everyone, but a very small subset of the population right. and based on assumptions that are probably not going to be reality. So you got into something, as long as you're being reasonable about what you're doing, you've gotten good advice and you're smart about it, it's a very safe way to buy a home if you can be financially stable enough to hold it for long enough. This whole idea of the market crashing, there's been two times in Utah's history when there was actually a real housing recession. And that's it, two times. And a housing recession, we're going to use the old definition of a recession before this year, because apparently the government redefined recession as yes. whatever we want it to be. So it used to be that in economics, a recession was two consecutive quarters with a decrease in price. That happened in 94. It happened in the recession, 2008. 2008, right. 2007, that's 2008. It. That's it. Now, maybe we're going to find last year the similar thing. Maybe there was another little housing recession for two quarters once we have all the data. But those two previous recessions were hinged off of one thing, and that was unemployment. And if you think about it, it makes sense. The only reason why people are going to mass sell their houses to a point that there's more demand than there is supply is if people don't have enough jobs to go around, Right. If you've got a job and you're making money and inflation kicks in, you're not selling your house. You're staying put because you've got an interest rate that's fixed. If you have a house and the price of everything goes up, awesome. The price of your house is fixed because you got a mortgage. You know, you have a house and interest rates go up. Great. Who cares? Because typically with interest rates comes inflation. With inflation comes increasing value for your house. Everybody thinks inflation is going to be bad for property owners. Inflation is great if you're a property owner because the price of stuff goes up, including your house. The only reason logically why somebody's going to just mass sell their house is they lost their job and their neighbor lost their job and their neighbor lost their job and nobody can afford their mortgage anymore. So they're selling it and there's enough people selling that can't afford the mortgage or that have to move out of state to get a, a job somewhere else and not enough people moving into the state or buying those homes with jobs that you get an imbalance of supply and demand and then you have to go to foreclosure. Because if you're in a market like we are right now where there's 45 days inventory, like there is. And there's two and a half percent unemployment, like there is. And there's about the same number of homes on the market today as there was in 2018, like there is. Population in Utah has gone up by 235,000 people since 2018. And based on last month's numbers, I don't have the MLS, so I'm going off of the data I found. There's about the same number of homes listed today as there was in 2018. We have 235,000 more people living in Utah than we did then. We still have a shortage, a significant shortage. There is a shortage. massive shortage. There's a 47,000 housing unit shortage, or about 31 to 47, depending on the numbers you use. Plus the 6.9%, there's 6.9% higher employment today yes. than there was pre-COVID. Yes, it's crazy. And so when you, I look at all that, for there to be a massive change in home prices in Utah, it would necessitate a significant change in our employment. You would have to have a large unemployment event where you had a lot of people lose their jobs at the same time. And that happened in 2008 because the housing market made up a big chunk of our jobs and the economy mm -hmm. at that point. Well, you know, SVPB bank fee thing, I can't ever say it. The Silicon Valley bank failure, that made people fearful that maybe there was going to be another job. Well, it didn't materialize. And if there are jobs that are lost in one sector in Utah, there's 50 people waiting to hire you. And right. so you lose your job, great, go get a better one, making more money out there if you're looking. And so somebody buying today, I just share that. I share those data points with them. I let them know, here's what's really going on behind the news article. Here's the real story of what's happening. Why news article, why is new construction less expensive than building right now? Well, it's because a lot of production builders are stock-based or they're portfolio-based and they've got loans they have to meet. And they're carrying a bunch of inventory from people who didn't close on their loans in the fall because rates went up. So they've got this excess of inventory and their bank and lending line is going, you got way too much inventory sitting here. And by the way, you're not selling anything. So if they're a publicly traded company, their stock's taking a hit. Well, their lending is all based off of their stock price mm -hmm. oftentimes. So they have got to move inventory right now. I don't care if they take a loss on that individual house because it opens up the door for them to go out and build on this lot at a much higher price. So they're going to cut the price of new construction when they get into this kind of crazy market for a period oh, of time. Does that make sense? Yes. Because they have got to move their unsold inventory. So that wasn't fake news. It, that was real <laughs> news, but it was real temporary. Okay. That's what I was going to say. That is not going to last long. No, real In news, a blink of an eye, it's going to yeah. be over. And so if you know the story behind that, you can go, okay, I can take action on this right now. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that's going to continue. Okay. And so, you know, it's that same thing. I believe in information. 
I think information is the key point of making good decisions and then running the numbers and finding out what it means and what's the likelihood, what's the probabilities of the outcome being what you want? What's the likelihood home prices are going to go up? What's the probability in Utah of us going to a 6% unemployment? Pretty slim right now, based on everything that's happening. Well, if that's not likely, it's very unlikely we're going to see a massive housing correction. And so once you know those two things, you can go, okay, well, I think I feel okay now. I feel okay. My emotional decision is now based on let's move forward truth because it's based on truth, not based on assumptions. That was a long answer. But that was a great answer. Awesome answer. I love it. I feel like just hearing you talk just brought this like calming where I'm like, (laughs) I'm going to tell my kids that. But really though, like life, like you said, as you brought the data of all the things that have happened before and you're like, this isn't anything that we haven't seen before. It is a good time. Thanks. Seriously. My pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure to just go on and on. No, Alan, this is You put a quarter of me and say, let's talk numbers. I'm in. (laughs) Exactly. You are in. (laughs) Idiot to genius. The process by which the individual right to fail unleashes the unlimited potential to succeed. In summary, it's called freedom. To all our listeners out there, remember you get to choose your title company. So remember, there's a reason why there's a one in our title.